Terrific. Very warm welcome indeed, everyone. Thank you very much indeed for coming. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm Director of the Institute for Government. And I'm really, really pleased to be launching this report of ours today on governing without ministers, as Jill Rutter just uh, told me now, coming up to 1,000 days on October 17th since the executive in Northern Ireland was last functioning. And this is a report we were talking about, I mean, many months ago, really, at the start of the year, uh, when I sat down and talked to talked with Jill about this, and it's something that I, having spent quite a bit of time in Northern Ireland over the years, felt very strongly about, that this was being uh, enormously neglected, neglected in Westminster, not just because of the uh, constant drama of, uh, of the Brexit politics, um, but neglected in the way that uh, sometimes in Northern Ireland can be, I would uh, suggest, um, from, from Westminster. And, and then was just the consequences of being without a government there were getting, getting lost in the twists and turns of, of, of Brexit here. And I wanted us to look at, uh, at those consequences and to bring that home to an audience uh, back here, as well as helping uh, discuss in, with those in Northern Ireland what might be done about it. And we're gonna tease out here as well how much of that can be uh, disentangled from the drama that has not gone away, if I can put it that way, referring coyly, at least to last night. We've got a terrific panel here to discuss it. The two authors of the report, Jess Sargent, who uh, joined us recently as, as a researcher and uh, has, has made a terrific start at the Institute with uh, working on this, and Jill Rutter, Programme Director here, who has uh, turned a blast of energy onto this. And we're very grateful for the many, many people who spoke to us uh, on this. And then for the rest of the panel, thank you very much for joining us on this. Sir Jonathan Phillips, warden at Keeble College, Oxford now, former permanent secretary of the Northern Ireland office from 2005 to 2010, including uh, the, the, what is uh, so far the longest period of direct rule and the restoration of the executive at that, at that point. Peter May, permanent secretary of the Department of Justice and the Northern Ireland Civil Service and uh, joined the Department of Justice in September last year, about exactly a year ago, uh, having previously been Permanent Secretary at the Department of Infrastructure and has been involved in various uh, decisions which may or may not come, uh, come up in that, but the ever contentious issue of water has been, I think, part of your, <coughs> part of your career. And Owen Sims, who I had the pleasure of talking uh, with a couple of weeks ago in, in Belfast, Senior Pol Policy Officer at CBI Northern Ireland and has been, um, instrumental in a lot of the CBI's work on Northern Ireland and what the lack of an executive could cost and what the different versions of Brexit could mean for the economy. Very warm welcome to you all. So the home team is going to kick off with telling us what is in this report. Um, I'm going to wave at it, it at you now, but it is uh, uh, beautifully written and I think really um, a passionate and nuanced account of what is going on out there. And uh, they're going to they're going to take it away, and then we will have a discussion. I think there are going to be a lot of questions, so I will come to you quite quickly on that. Jess, great, thank you. Um, so as Bronwyn mentioned, Northern Ireland has now been without ministers for almost a thousand days. Um, so our report looks at how it's functioned during this period, what the consequences of this have been, and also how effective government in Northern Ireland can be supported once the executive and if the executive is restored. So I'm going to talk about the first two, um, and then Jill will cover the latter. So the history of power sharing in Northern Ireland has often been rocky, so the executive has collapsed multiple times before. But as the flowchart shows, unlike previous times when the executive collapsed in 2017, the UK government did not impose direct rule. As a result, Northern Ireland ministers have been responsible for the day-to-day -day running of Northern Ireland during this period. Departments operate as before, but without ministerial direction, working within the constraints of the policy direction set by the executive prior to collapse. The ability of civil servants to make decisions was challenged in 2017, when a decision to approve the construction of an incinerator was overturned following judicial review. This led to concerns that the officials' ability to continue to operate would be further constrained. So in response, Westminster passed legislation to clarify their role. Um, our analysis of decisions made under the Act um, shows that uh, the number of decisions varies quite significantly by department. So, for example, the Department of Health has been making the most decisions and the Executive Office, um, which usually uh, operates under the direction of the First Minister and the Deputy for minister, First Minister, has made the fewest. So this reflects a number of factors. Um, in part, it's the nature of the, de the departmental work, the kind of level of ministerial inter intervention um, in normal times. 
Um, also, the level of clear policy direction prior to collapse. And in some cases, um, the willingness of individual senior officials to make decisions. Um, Northern Ireland officials have also been involved in preparations for Brexit, providing factual information and analysis to the UK government about the consequences for Northern Ireland. Overall, the UK government has taken a minimalist role, letting decisions build up and encourage the encouraging the political parties back into government. Westminster has legislated in devolved areas, but only really when unavoidable, to pass budgets, to set annual rates, and to prevent a further election. More substantive policy changes, such as the extension of same-sex marriage and changes to reproductive rights in Northern Ireland, have been the result of backbench amendments, not UK government policy. The lack of ministers has had serious consequences for the people of Northern Ireland. Our report identifies six key consequences. First, there are pressing issues that are going unaddressed, even when there is local disagreement. This is often because legislation is required, and the Northern Ireland Assembly has been unable, and the UK Parliament unwilling, to legislate. Perhaps the most high-profile example of this um, is the lack of progress on compensation for victims of historical institutional abuse, over two years after, after compensation was, rec um, was recommended by the Hart Inquiry. Recently, the UK government has committed to legislate in some of these areas, including on the Hart Inquiry. But with questions of legislative time and capacity, it's not clear whether a Northern Ireland issues will be a priority for the, for the UK Parliament going forward. The inability of civil servants to make policy decisions has also um, led to the risk of what the head of Northern Ireland civil service, David Sterling, termed the risk of stagnation and decay of public services. Many civil servants we spoke to in the process of researching this report suggested that the biggest consequence was not the risk of a, a cliff edge of the, because of the immediate lack of decision making, but a steady decline due to the inability of civil servants to develop new policy or change policy direction. So the Department of Health benefits from quite a clear transformation agenda, which was set by the executive for collapse. But there are still certain decisions, like the reconfiguration of emergency departments, that it would be difficult to make without political cover. Meanwhile, as the graph shows, the number of patients waiting over 12 hours for emergency care has spiked. In other areas, like in education and infrastructure, there's even less clear policy direction, and therefore the focus has been on maintaining services rather than uh, working on the increasingly necessary reforms. And now, it's not clear that if the executive had been functioning, whether these issues would have been tackled, but ministers are certainly a prerequisite to progress. There's also a lack of scrutiny account and accountability. There are no ministers to hold civil servants to account for their decisions, and there's no assembly to hold ministers to account. The Westminster um, institutions have done little to, to fill this scrutiny gap, and Northern Ireland legislation is often rushed through through the emergency legislation procedure, subject to little scrutiny. <coughs> Um, in response to the accountability gap, Northern Ireland uh, civil service officials have taken a more public-facing role, making efforts to explain the work of the government and their departments to the public. But aside from judicial review, there's no, re there's no way for, um, for these decisions to really be challenged. Northern Ireland has also been left without proper representation in the Brexit process, despite the fact it's disproportionately affected by, by Brexit. Throughout this whole period, there's been no ministerial representation of Northern Ireland as a whole. Officials have attended intergovernmental meetings like the Joint Ministerial Committee in lieu of ministers, but while devolved ministers can advocate in the interests of Scotland and Wales, attending NICS officials are restricted to providing information only. Now, the only political representation there is of Northern Ireland is in Westminster. And as the figure shows, in 2017, the only nationalists elected to Parliament were Sinn Féin, whose abstentionist policy means that there are no sitting nationalist MPs, and the only dissenting voice from the DUP is the independent um, MP, Lady Sylvia Herman. The DUP only represent one specific distinctive strand of opinion in Northern Ireland, but the confidence and supply agreement with the Conservative Party has given them significant influence, especially in the Brexit process. In response to the lack of plurality of Northern Ireland voices in Westminster, civil society and civil servants have been more vocal about the consequences of Brexit for Northern Ireland, and in particular, no deal. The CBI is, is a very clear example of that, and I'm sure um, Owen will go on to talk about that later. Another consequence is the lack of ministers is that the North-South Ministerial Council can't meet and that therefore there are lots of uh, opportunities for cross-border working that would have been very valuable throughout the Brexit process that, that have been missed. There's also a long-term risk of deterioration of community relations. Power sharing, the power sharing institutions were designed to foster peace and to, fo and to make the communities work together. In its absence, there are concerns that as political tensions flare, with parties blaming each other for the failure to restore government, this could filter down to a population level, and Northern Ireland's hard-won peace could be under threat. What's clear is that the current situation is not sustainable. 
The purpose of our report is to highlight co the consequences of a lack of functioning government in Northern Ireland. As, as I mentioned and as Brogman mentioned, uh, Northern Ireland a part of the, is a part of the UK that's had no functioning government for only a thousand days, but this fact receives mar remarkable little attention in London. The UK government needs to make restoring the durable power sharing a real priority. Um, another part of our report is that uh, Northern Ireland should not only be governed, but governed well. So Jill will now talk about the report's recommendations on how uh, government can be improved. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Jess. So, uh, as we say in our report, restoring the executive we regard as a necessary but not necessarily sufficient uh, condition for governing Northern Ireland well. Uh, we look in our report at some of the criticisms people have made of actually the way the executive functioned when it was operating. I think we need to actually stand back, and those of us that are old enough, probably means virtually nobody at the Institute for Government, but, uh, but the rest of us, you know, need to remember actually just how much, how amazing it is that Northern Ireland has local government at all for those of us that uh, spent the early parts of our career watching the troubles. Um, and just what a demand we actually make of politicians in Northern Ireland. Uh, the UK had a brief uh, flirtation experience of coalition between 2010 and 2015, but we require of the Northern Ireland parties that they cooperate with people who have very different political views, political identities, political traditions, and try to make that work. So in one sense, it's amazing it works at all. Uh, but I think it's therefore incumbent on everybody to say, actually, given how amazing it is it works, is there anything we could do to help it make better? Because one of the things we heard, perhaps the most frequent word we heard when Jess and I were in Northern Ireland, was that this was a very immature political system. So is there anything we can do to help this grow up a bit better and actually enable those difficult long-term decisions which the UK government struggles with, enable the Northern Ireland government to do that better? So we have a menu of recommendations. Most of these actually are not our own thoughts, um, though they do slightly reflect the uh, prior work by the Institute for Government of how we think you might just make better policy in the UK more generally, but they reflect ideas that we heard from the people we spoke to in Northern Ireland. So uh, we put them out there to stimulate a bit of a debate about the quality of governance in Northern Ireland, uh, recognising, of course, the importance of maintaining the strands set out in the Good Friday Agreement. So I'm just going to run through our recommendations extraordinarily quickly just to put them out there. The first we heard was that ministers are quite short-termist, uh, look particularly quite often to local political advantage and there isn't really a safe space to float new difficult ideas and actually that the sort of policy making capacity is quite constrained. So one of the things we think it might be interesting to look at is other places which have created institutions to help with policy development. Uh, look for example at Australia and New Zealand both of which have you know, sort of arm's length bodies as think tanks sort of productivity commissions. I think it's a very interesting thing that we should look at in the UK. Could that help in the Northern Ireland context? Northern Ireland doesn't have its own What Works Centre. We now have a variance on those in Scotland and Wales. Uh, that was, I think, in a DUP manifesto. But actually, that sort of policy transference, policy information might be useful to incoming ministers. And there was a commitment to the Fresh Start Agreement to establish an independent fiscal council. Would that be helpful as people are looking at the sustainability of long-term fiscal trends, something that we know the civil servants are in Northern Ireland uh, find, uh, find worrying, uh, would that help particularly the gap between sort of revenues and spending going forward. The second thing, and I think this is going to be picked up a lot by the Renewable Heat Incentive Inquiry, which is obviously still considering its report, is the operation and capabilities of the Northern Ireland Civil Service. Northern Ireland Civil, Civil, Civil Service has done an amazing job in making the executive function at all. Uh, but it's suffered from a decade-long recruitment freeze, which means it's got a very unbalanced age structure. Um, and it also seems to not quite embrace the professionalisation agenda in quite the same way as we have here in the UK. It's also interesting that the role that we have the Cabinet Office here in driving civil service reform you know, isn't part so much of the remit of a much weaker centre in Northern Ireland. And it's quite interesting that the siloisation that we complain of here 
uh, happens in spades in Northern Ireland, not least because of the way ministries are distributed, according to the De Hunt formula, um, which is sort of basically like sort of picking teams. So it's distributed among the parties according to a formula, which is quite an interesting way. Just imagine if we did that, uh, that over here. Um, and it means that actually the sort of notions of collective decision-making and collective responsibility are much, much weaker in Northern Ireland. Some interesting moves just before the Earth's Executive fell to create a sort of you know, outcomes-based programme for government, but we don't know yet whether that would have driven change behaviours. So we have some ideas, uh, perhaps sort of you know, looking at different ways of equipping the civil service to perform better, and maybe, I think it's a very interesting thing, building a bit on something that I think the New Zealand civil service does well, of actually establishing a bit of distance between the civil service and the ministers that they serve in terms of giving the civil service a specific stewardship role. And actually, the civil service does such an amazing job of keeping the show on the road with no government there. Maybe that's actually how they'll operate going forward. We have various people from the Northern Ireland civil service who might want to comment on that. Um, one of the uh, outcomes, um, I don't want to say benefits of Brexit, one of the outcomes is that more voices have taken part in the political arena in uh, Northern Ireland and got involved in the policy debate to fill the vacuum left by the lack of an executive. But a number of people said that they felt there wasn't a vibrant policy community in Northern Ireland. There have been ideas before. There was an idea in the original Good Friday Agreement for a civic forum uh, or a civic advisory council, I think, was in a later agreement. It, is it worth considering putting something like that back in to formalise that, uh, that voice? The Republic has had a lot of positive experiences with citizens' assemblies. Are they a potential way forward on some of the intractable problems? I'm not sure whether even you know, water would be an example. And one of the most welcome developments is, I think, only yesterday, Alan Weissel, who's in the audience, uh, was at the launch of his new Northern Ireland think tank uh, under director Anne Watt, um, Pivotal. Can that contribute to a widening of policy thinking? We think there should be more cross-fertilisation between the UK's nations, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, not on... Brexit, Brexit issues, but actually on the sort of bread and butter of policy making and the challenges we're all trying to find. It's really good to see that Leslie Evans, the Permanent Secretary in Scotland, was in Northern Ireland last week. We think there should be more capacity for scrutiny in the Northern Ireland Assembly. A system of government in which everybody can be in power is one that doesn't have opposition very well developed. And I think, actually, the Assembly probably lags in the development of its scrutiny function. So how can the Assembly be supported to scrutinise better and hold uh, the government, when it's restored, properly to account? And finally, some recommendations back home in Westminster. Um, I think people today have been remarking on how many Northern Ireland secretaries there have been since 2010. The answer is a lot. I think it's fair to say, no disrespect to the present incumbent, that it's not one of the most prized positions in the cabinet to be appointed cabinet secretary. But it makes a real difference in government. I know this from being another department, which you know tended to pick up the also rans, um, that it can make a real difference to your clout in Whitehall, depending on who you have. So the prime minister needs to take their responsibility towards Northern Ireland seriously and appoint a really respected figure as Northern Ireland Secretary, and somebody who doesn't just suit party management needs, actually is going to be a credible figure in Northern Ireland and can represent Northern Ireland's ver interests very, very well in the UK Cabinet. They also need to be able to go to Northern Ireland quite a lot. One of the most shocking things was when Karen Bradley admitted to the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee that because of the parliamentary arithmetic, she could spend barely any time in Northern Ireland. Uh, that can't be right, so why don't we have automatic pairing for the Northern Ireland Secretary, and both parties agree to that. Government needs to be aware of its roles and responsibilities under the Good Friday Agreement. And I think it's really interesting they should do nothing uh, to compromise their ability to act as an honest broker between the parties. Uh, I leave it to you whether that's an implicit criticism of the confidence and supply agreement or not. But there's also a big argument back in Whitehall. When the NIO has to staff up, uh, as it may have to do uh, in No Deal, it finds it very difficult to find people around Whitehall who are Northern Ireland <coughs> literate. And one of the reasons I was extraordinarily nervous about doing this report was despite a hugely long career in Whitehall, I think I went to Belfast twice, she said, so that's my admission there. We heard that 
too often people in Whitehall you equate... You went more since you did this, right? Yeah, I've done... <laughs> I have, I have. Um, I talked a lot more Northern Irish people. Anyway, but <laughs> one of the things that we, uh, uh, that people told us was actually there's a tendency within Whitehall to equate devolution with the problems of Scotland and see devolution entirely through that Scottish lens without understanding the different situation in Northern Ireland. There's also a much more functional level of Northern Irish illiteracy, of not understanding how UK-wide policies will play out. So one example is in some of the Brexit advertising campaigns, uh, which potentially worked in London, but not so well in Belfast, um, or on indeed for people for whom driving over the border was a daily activity, not something you did three or four times a year and took a ferry to do. Um, but also things like the way in which welfare, where we have this established parity <laughs> principle, would play out. So we heard that things like the bedroom tax play out very differently in Northern Ireland, which has a very different sort of housing stock. And people just need to take time to think about Northern Ireland. So our point of our report is to say, actually, it is amazing, as Jess said, that we've allowed part of the UK to go undergoverned for a thousand days. Think of the panic that there was here in May 2010, when for five days we appeared not to have a functioning government. That situation has been prevalent in Northern Ireland for nearly a thousand days. We think that that should be the top topic for Parliament to be discussing. Now it's got extra time and being brought back. Jill, thank you very much indeed. Terrific. Um, I, I want to go straight on to Jonathan, Peter, and, and Owen, and, and start first with what you make of this account that you've, you, you've heard of um, our, our take on the consequences of not having a government there for a thousand days, and tease out of that perhaps what the civil service can do and can't do in the absence of ministers. Let, let, me, let me start with you, Jonathan. Uh, well, first of all, let me um, congratulate the authors on what I think is a very good account of the history of devolution and, uh, uh, and of, of the recent challenges. I think it's a very impressive piece of work. And before answering your question, I just want to make two uh, preliminary comments because um, I think the report underplays one aspect of what the NICS has done over a very long period, despite the current problems, which is that it has sustained administration effectively in Northern Ireland in an extremely challenging, not to say at times dangerous in environment. And I think we should, that should be a starting point uh, of our perception of the NICS, particularly at a point where it may come under significant public criticism mm. when, when mm. the RHI, R RHI report comes out. Yes, this is just it, the unlikely event that people don't know, the renewable heat uh, incentive is the thing that brought down the, uh, the Stormont government's big row. Um, the second um, thing is that what we also need to be very careful of, it's a point I think not touched on, is that insofar as British governments have handled, and by which I mean the NIO number 10, over a number of years, um, leave aside the past um, nearly nine years since I've been out of the picture, um, have handled Northern Ireland affairs well. Uh, it's been against a background of a pretty consistent and strong bipartisan approach to, to policy on Northern Ireland. And I think we shouldn't underestimate how important it is to keep that um, going uh, in, in the Westminster context, notwithstanding um, everything else. Now, I think... I think I'm going to focus my observations very much on the, the London NIO end, and I'll leave um, the, the commentary on um, the impact in Northern Ireland to, to those who are currently embroiled in it. Uh, as you've said, I left actually on the day in 2010 on which we devolved uh, the powers of policing and justice. And uh, even in what had been a relatively successful period of bringing devolution back on a relatively stable basis. Um, it, it's worth remarking that the NIO's position in Northern Ireland is always difficult. Throughout its life, it, the institution, its ministers, and certainly its officials, have been the subject of significant mistrust across the communities for different reasons. I will describe that humorously. In 2007, just before 
devolution was restored, I met the late Ian Paisley at a social gathering. He came up to me, I was then the Permanent Secretary at the Northern Ireland office, with a big grin on his face. And he said, ah, the evil one. Uh, I, 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 a few days later, I, I met Martin McGuinness, and I told Martin uh, what Ian Paisley had said. And he said, well, do you know what? That's the first thing on which Ian Paisley and I have agreed over the last 12 months. <laughs> and that, in a humorous way, sums up um, the, the, the problem. Um, I think, there are, I think while I have great sympathy with the recommendations in the report, um, I, I think it's, it's worth bearing in mind just how difficult it is for the NIO to exercise influence when devolution is operating, and then when devolution is not, not operating in the, absence of direct, in the absence of direct rule, how difficult it is to pick up the threads, because the threads have been lost. And the difficulty when devolution is operating is, I think, as simple as this. The, the, the goal of Westminster when devolution happens is to make it a success, to let the people who are running it get on with the job. Now, one can argue about the period since 2010 uh, in terms of whether or not there was far too hands-off an approach, both in London and, and perhaps Dublin, um, in that spirit. But I think the spirit was uh, well intended. We can talk more about that if you like. Um, Jill's talked about the, uh, the importance of having a big figure, a senior figure, in the Northern Ireland Secretary role. And there are, there are some additional comments about the, the, the nature of the NIO and its ability to recruit uh, informed and effective people. Well, I, I, I'm not going to comment at all on the succession of recent Secretaries of State, um, but, I, but I will say that my own view is that unless and until there's a wider machinery of government change which looks at how we handle all our constitutional issues and the, the, the issues about devolved government in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, I cannot myself in the real world see that Northern Ireland, save for the dreadful circumstance in which the security situation deteriorates substantially, rising to the top of the Prime Ministerial Appointments whiteboard, I think it needs a, a harder think about um, a, a constitutional affairs um, department which takes on uh, a character as significant as the major offices of state. Um, and Final comment from me, um, I think you, this was touched on. Uh, I think you cannot overestimate the importance of the London-Dublin link. And Tony Blair has, has been making that point in the last 24 hours, and I, uh, I absolutely agree with it. Uh, we made significant progress in Northern Ireland when the relationship between London and Dublin progressed to a high level. I think, and I will say this by way of commentary on the period immediately after I departed, I think that relationship was allowed to um, uh, deteriorate. Uh, and, it, uh, and it was not helped, of course, by a change of leadership in Dublin. So that is also a priority for attention. Thank you very much indeed for that. And I, I'm going to come back to some of, some of those points. We're all looking at constitutional things uh, with more urgency than we were, <laughs> but I still I want to unpick a bit with a short of a whole constitutional review, whether there, there um, are, are things that might be done. Um, Peter, what do you think um, of this? Well, first, I just join uh, Jonathan in congratulating the Institute, in particular Jill and Jess, for the report. It's a hugely complex area, and I think the report does uh, really good justice to um, the issues that they've looked at. I just start with perhaps a personal reflection. Jess mentioned the um, incinerator decision that had generated uh, those issues. Um, I was the, uh, the, the sole or idiot, depending on your uh, view, uh, who took that decision. Um, it's worth reflecting, I guess, in the context of this week's events that I thought when I took the decision, it was within my powers to take that decision. <laughs> I took it in good faith. Um, and I wasn't convinced by the court judgment, but the Court of Appeal then uh, cemented that. So um, there you go. And that then led to legislation that tried to, tried to clarify what was and wasn't possible. In practice, of course, all it does is it sets uh, a public interest test that needs to be applied for all decisions that, that doesn't really clarify uh, what's possible and what isn't. 
The consequence of the uh, environment over the last thousand, thousand days, or near thousand days, I think fundamentally what we need to nail is that it's constitutionally and politically unacceptable uh, in any situation to be, to have a, a bureaucracy in the literal term of the, uh, of the, of the word. Um, I absolutely agree with the stagnation and decay point that David Sterling has made. There isn't a cliff edge, but there's a massive opportunity cost that is being felt across Northern Ireland because of the inability to tackle the really big issues that need to be addressed. Um, and uh, inevitably, uh, while uh, those of us who are within government are doing our best to take decisions where we can, we are constrained. Uh, where there isn't a consensus, it is particularly difficult to take a decision. Clearly, we cannot uh, legislate where primary or, or indeed any form of um, legislature is required in order to legislate. Um, and we need to recognise that we still need to be fit to serve an incoming uh, uh, administration, which means that there needs to be a clarity about the fact that we're politically uh, neutral as we do so. Um, I also uh, agree strongly with what Jonathan said about the role of the two governments, and certainly at times when the two governments are at loggerheads, uh, as has felt to be increasingly the case in recent times, then there's no doubt that that drives unhelpfully uh, a political uh, dialogue and a set of attitudes within uh, Northern Ireland. Um, I think we have to reflect that the institutions that have been established uh, were still uh, finding their feet. Um, I would, however, not be too hard on some of the politicians. We have to recognize that nowhere else in the world are what are essentially two political enemies expected to decide every decision together at the heart of government. That's a high bar for any set of politicians uh, to pass. Um, my final uh, just set of reflections would be around um, the impact on the Northern Ireland civil service and um, the need for reform. And I think that um, we've had the chance to draw breath over the last two or three years and to really look at that set of issues I think the RHI uh, report, when it comes out in the autumn, will shine a particular light, both on the political and the administrative classes, in terms of what we need to do. So we've been focused very much on trying to do some short-term work uh, to try and uh, change some of, the, the, uh, some of the, the basics. So examples of that would include a reformed code of ethics for the Northern Ireland Civil Service with much greater clarity about the scope to challenge and I think a greater sense ourselves of the challenges that we have in a small jurisdiction where we can't necessarily be expected to have the expertise to deal with every set of uh, policy, uh, uh, every policy agenda that needs to be addressed. But alongside that, we need to be very careful whose ideas we do co-opt because what may seem like a good solution in London often doesn't work in a very different context in Belfast. I often think that both Edinburgh and Dublin provide a much closer set of uh, parameters for us to look at in terms of uh, our social and, and wider economic uh, uh, makeup. And alongside some of those issues, we're also looking at the long-term culture of the Northern Ireland Civil Service with a particular focus on our leadership. Uh, the permanent secretaries themselves have been through a leadership development program, and that has been uh, replicated at a number of different levels within the service to really try to uh, be ready for the time when uh, there is a return of a political authority uh, and to be able to address issues uh, perhaps in a slightly different way as we go, as we go forward. So those would be some of my early comments. Peter, th th thanks. thanks very much indeed for that. I'm going to pick up some of the Brexit, Brexit points in a moment. Owen, you're... Yep, sure. Um, I just want to follow up um, by saying thank you so much for this report. It is absolutely fantastic and it was extremely welcome and a lot of my colleagues in CBI in Belfast were very excited uh, to read it and to learn uh, as well. Um, it's great to bring the debate beyond the Irish Sea. Um, I think that uh, one of the most striking things that I find uh, working in the CBI is that we do get um, a lot of people coming to visit from London and it's astonishing how much they learn whenever they, whenever they come over. Um, uh, how much you know, fundamental policy is devolved in Northern Ireland um, from um, uh, water and transport to energy and environment to education, higher education, uh, universities, uh, people and skills. Um, are all devolved uh, policies, um, and that's what I really want to bring out um, in the discussion, is that I think kind of building up on, on uh, your paper, this is a fun fundamental for the economy um, in Northern Ireland, and, and not having ministers there is having a real opportunity cost um, to the development of policy that needs to be done 
um, in order to have long-term success uh, and prosperity and peace in Northern Ireland. Um, just fundamental, fundamental economic issues are kind of uh, devolved, um, require ministerial oversight, and at the minute I, I just uh, took some statistics um, before this uh, meeting. Um, road maintenance is currently underfunded by the tune of 400 million. Uh, transport infrastructure is underfunded by a billion. Water infrastructure underfunded by one, up, coming up to 1.5 billion. Um, outpatient waiting lists just released in BBC a few days ago, 100 times more in NI than in England. Um, eradicating NI waiting lists costs a billion. Um, and universities can only accommodate 60% of students that actually apply to the university. So as a consequence, um, due to the way it's the unique way it's funded, um, a lot of students um, uh, leave Northern Ireland um, and there's a significant brain drain. So these are critical issues and decisions that need to be tackled and need to be looked at. Um, and it's important that ministers come back and are able to, uh, are able to tackle them. Um, regarding um, opportunities, uh, the CBI has never been closer to um, the civil service in Northern Ireland. We've been working with them extremely closely uh, in terms of giving them evidence and in terms of working with them on, on their reports. They've been absolutely incredible. Um, uh, in in uh, their research into understanding, for example, what the opportunity cost is and what the impact of uh, of Brexit will be on the Northern Irish economy, and I'm sure we'll come we'll come to that um, in the questions. Thank you very much indeed. And I want to, we've only got an hour, so I want to come very quickly to the questions. Let me just ask I'm going to ask Peter and and, and Jill. Uh, we've actually mercifully avoided diving right into Brexit uh, at this point and been talking about. Uh, Northern Ireland government separate from that, but I wondered whether you thought that there were problems um, that Brexit presented, for example, a, a no deal, even if that seems a bit less likely at the moment, um, that might force the restoration of direct rule and what that would mean at the, at the moment. Uh, Peter, John, Jonathan, if you want, I want to come to Jill. Well, the Northern Ireland Civil Services assessment of a no-deal Brexit is that it would have severe and long-term consequences for Northern Ireland, and those consequences would apply economically, socially, and in the justice uh, political space as well. Um, and uh, certainly it is our assessment that uh, there will be a set of decisions that need to be taken in the context of a no-deal uh, that it would be uh, pretty much impossible for civil servants to take. Um, if you have sectors of your economy uh, which may not be viable immediately after no deal, uh, with a lack of clarity about uh, what future arrangements might be put in place, um, there may well be uh, moves to try to put in interventions to support those. But the decisions about which sectors to support and how much and on what basis are quintessentially political decisions to make. Um, and those are the sorts of spaces that you get into, I think, and it's very, very hard to see how the Northern Ireland Civil Service could be expected uh, reasonably to take those decisions, given that those sectors that aren't then being supported would uh, potentially be failing as a result. And so that, that pushes one towards direct rule, but what would that mean? Jonathan, did you want to Well, I, 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 was, I was about to make that very point. I think uh, if, if, we, if we did end up in no deal, um, then there's no time for a week-long, six weeks-long, months-long, process to get the parties back into an executive. My advice, were I back in government, would be unequivocally, you have to, notwithstanding all the consequences, institute direct rule for precisely the, the, the reasons that Peter's alluded to. But it's easy for me to say that because I'm nowhere near the decision maker. Mm. And back in 2002, when that, when that, when that um, happened, it was only a few years after. There was a sense of it, but you know, it, 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 it seemed to me less, um, fraught than it might be now. Well, I think, I think that goes back to something else I said earlier. It was the nature of the relationship between the two governments. I mean, the fact of the matter is that although the Irish government in 2002 um, publicly opposed the decision because they had to, um, privately it did not detract from the very positive relationship which Tony Blair had with Bertie Ahern, mm. which um, infused the relationships of other ministers and, and, and civil service teams. Mm. Mm. Jill and Jess, do you want to... Well, I think just coming uh, in on that, I think... Peter's exactly right. You can't get civil servants, particularly, you know, one of the things we were told, and Peter you know, mentioned his own example, is that, you know, if you decide to bail out one company, not another, 
uh, you know, somebody goes to court, what on earth is going to happen there? I mean, you need political cover and accountability for the sorts of decisions. And a responsible government, we said in the report, Joe Owen, Maddie Timmett-Jack and I did, uh, in August said a responsible government would be putting in place those powers now to have them available from day one. I don't know whether that's um, feasible given the legislative blocks in government uh, to take powers to sort that out. But as uh, Jonathan says, it is much more complicated now because the relationship with the Irish government is not in a good place because of the... Uh, because of Brexit, so that makes it much more difficult. There's another area as well where I think Northern Ireland is suffering, which is no deal is the immediate thing on the horizon. But there's a whole raft of areas of development of post-Brexit policy. Um, if you look at agriculture, which really matters for Northern Ireland, it's a big part of the economy. Uh, there, Michael Gove had very clear ideas of how agriculture support should develop in England. The Scots and the Welsh governments have a very different view of how mm. they want agricultural support to develop. You know, Northern Ireland civil servants cannot, you know, on mm. their own bat, decide whether to go with a sort of Scottish-Welsh-style scheme or an English payments for public goods style scheme. Those are very big decisions about the future mm. direction that you can't ask civil servants to make and where they have no political cover because actually when the executive fell at the start of 2017, people were not thinking about what does our post-Brexit mm. economic regime look like. Mm. Jess, did you want to add anything? Yeah, um, I mean, the UK government has kind of alluded to the fact that some form of additional powers, as, as they tend to phrase it, will be needed in the event of, of no deal. And it kind of, they've made suggestions that they might just seek powers in certain areas or whether there be some kind of, kind of pay-as-you-go direct rule, some people have, have described it. But I think um, the government needs to be, make sure that it has all those tools in, in, uh, in their toolbox. Um, in the event that mm. there is no deal. And I think trying to kind of pick and choose these powers could be very problematic. And also leave a lot of the other issues um, un unaddressed, like the issues around public services and such like. But this situation has been going on for two and a half years. And within, with or without uh, um, no deal, it's, it's clearly unsustainable. Mm. Thanks. I'm, I'm going to come down to questions. I just want to emphasise one point that Jill and uh, Jonathan and Peter have made about reminding us of, of just the, the difficulty of getting the government working uh, even in the good days. And I think it's absolutely worth remembering that illustration provided on our wall of, one of, a, of what an uh, achievement it was um, seen to be. I spent a lot of time in the years after the, the Good Friday Agreement in assorted war zones in, in Iraq and uh, the Balkans and so on, where the UK accepted a lot of compliments uh, as if it had been the only actor in achieving the, the Good Friday um, Agreement. But the, th the thrust of diplomacy in a lot of those desperate places was very much to separate groups of people who couldn't stand each other, who had been fighting. And, 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 w and the compliments at least recognised that uh, uh, the UK and, and uh, the Republic and, and the, the US and its part and everyone in Northern Ireland had tried to get it. Uh, the opposite working of, of uh, actually groups of people working together, and it had, it had been an achievement. Um, questions? Let's start, let's start here, and then no, I'll come to. Simon Webb, can I talk a bit about the security dimension? I mean, unlike Jill, I spent uh, 18 months of my young civil service career in Northern Ireland as an advisor to the, to the army, and I remember it very well. And I was there a couple of weeks ago talking happily, both to the IRA and the, and the UVF. Um, my question is, how would we know in time that the security situation might be deteriorating against, and who would be able to do what about it? I'm looking a bit at Peter, and maybe. Because, after all, there was a big British political intervention in Northern Ireland this year, when Prime Minister May flew over to Belfast to go to the, fu well, no, to London, to the funeral of someone who'd been killed in a violent way there. And that was the thing that brought British government back into the game. And I, and I just had an awful feeling when I was in 73, 74, that if we'd acted six years before to sort of get in and get at some of the roots of the of causes of the violence, we, we would have uh, saved ourselves a lot of bloodshed and trouble. So who is responsible for keeping an eye on the risk of a security deterioration? And did Jill find enough of that? As, as, as we haven't dived that much into the security situation, let me just take that one and, and, and explore it. Um, uh, Owen, can I start, actually start with your perspective? Do, do, you, do you want to come in on, on, the, on the security? Um, How we would know? And sure. Um, 
from 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 our experience um, and from our discussions, um, uh, peace and prosperity are fundamentally linked. Um, so, a lot of departments, as I understand it, are looking at this and are trying to understand this a bit better. Um, when you get when you go into kind of a New Deal situation, for example, I mean that's a smuggler's paradise. Um, that's that's a really um, uh, especially when industries such as agri-food and um, food and drink uh, collapse because Ireland has no framework in which to accept their goods. Um, trade will stop, border regions will deteriorate, and that is a, um, a hotbed for um, black market economic activity, which fuels uh, social unrest. And there's kind of a there's kind of a, a potential for an unraveling at that point. So it can start off small, um, uh, but then you know if it becomes the boom town, if it becomes the the, the booming industry in in some in some places, um, how can that you know? Trickle into other other um, other activities. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, mm. indeed. Yeah, I, there's a. There, I was I was just I was just um, I was just uh, doing a bit of googling before before this, and you know there is the town of Pedigo, half of which is in Donegal and half of which is in Fermanagh, and uh, part of joining the um, the single market and customs union. Smuggling was a, an everyday activity. It's, 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 you can't not do it. Um, so it's, it's interesting. I think in some ways this is a bit of a, it may sound like a cop-out, but it's not meant as one. I think the answer to your question of who is responsible is everybody, uh, just that everybody has a different role to play. So technically the British government retains national security as uh, its responsibility. Um, there have probably been more British government ministers in South Amar in the last three to six months than I'd say in the past century. Now, it says quite a lot about the last three to six months, but it also says quite a lot about the past century, I think. Um, yesterday, I was at an organized crime cross-border uh, conference where the PSNI, the Angada Shikona, and the various other law enforcement agencies come together. I think Owen's absolutely right to highlight that there are key risk factors associated with Brexit around organized crime, which could leach into uh, providing funding for uh, subversive organizations as well. Um, I think that it's not inevitable that there'll be an upsurge in the security situation as a result of Brexit. It is just that the risk factors are greater, um, and there's obviously risk factors around public disorder, um, some of which are shared here, but which may have a slightly different dimension uh, in, in Northern Ireland. You got this far without mentioning the possibility of a border poll and what that would do to sentiment and security. There will be many different views on uh, the, the impact on a border poll. And I, I personally um, uh, think that um, whatever the shifts in opinion, and even if we get to a point at which British ministers looking at their obligation to consider uh, the need for a, a border poll conclude that one's inevitable, there's a whole other aspect, which is the context in which that poll takes place. I mean, to take just one example, what is the degree of preparation in Dublin uh, to put a framework, if you like, an offering, uh, uh, an expression of intent on the table, which would inform a poll? Um, I, I, I personally don't think that's the immediate issue which should be taking our attention. There are much more immediate ones, and they're linked to the analogy which Simon's question draws uh, between the, the, the half decade or more before direct rule was imposed uh, in, in 72 and the current position. I mean, the fact is what successive British governments have not done since the Second World War, and I won't bore on about the history, is focus on the underlying uh, issues which were the tinder, if you like, um, and the equivalent now, candidly, leave aside RHI and the, uh, RHI and the immediate causes of the uh, uh, downfall of the executive in 2017, but the immediate context is Brexit. Brexit needs sorting. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, fine. Let's let's press on. Let me take a couple now uh, here and and then at the back. And uh, there's a microphone. Will be a microphone. Great. Thank you, uh, Andrew McCormick. I'm in the Northern Ireland Civil Service. So just to draw out, in a way, what's what's the alternative to where we are now? This is something we wrestle with within the team, and mm. I will yield to no one in my view that what we have at the present time is you know, absolutely legitimate. Uh, mm. My comfort to UK government is actually there's the only available alternatives are worse, as in direct rule is worse uh, because it is one-sided, and especially in the present parliament would be, would be seen as a very unacceptable uh, outcome on the equally then any because move. Because of the influence of the DUP. Mm. Yes, equally then any, any move to have uh, what was sometimes called direct rule with a green tinge. Mm. It was talked about in the run-up to uh, devolution in 06, 07, is equally uh, unthinkable in the present context. So I think no deal takes us there, as, as has been said, uh, for the, because the, at that point, the balance between reasonable governance and political acceptability just shifts in that important way. But absent that, finding a way back mm. is, is the, what really matters. And that takes us into how to restore a confident process, uh, how to secure both of the main parties uh, back into a process. A lot of work has gone into that in the last uh, number of months, but you know, I think that's, that's in a way the hardest, I'm mm. trying to find the hardest question for, the, mm. <laughs> for comment is, how, how, do we, how do we find our way back here? Great, thank you for that. Let me, there's a, all right, one, one next to you and I'm gonna take one at the back as well. Please sure. go ahead. Um, my name is Imran Khan, thank you. Um, so sorry, I didn't hear that. <clears throat> my name is Imran Khan, thank you. Um, my question, is, I'm not from the UK, so you will realize it from my question. Um, how could it actually happen that the government in Northern Ireland collapsed, and then how could it happen that it was allowed to happen for 1,000 uh, 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 days? Uh, does not really, uh, what is systemically wrong in, in, the, in the government system that could really allow that to happen? Yes, thank, thank you. you very much indeed, and let's go to, let's go to the back. Someone suddenly got coy. Um, wasn't there one at the back? Yeah. My question is rather similar to the first question, uh, in that there is. Um, I was just wondering what, whether imposing direct rule, instituting direct rule rather, uh, would that create a disincentive for reforming or the or bringing back in the Northern Ireland executive, given that the DUP is in confidence and supply with the UK government. All right, th thanks very much. So we, we've, we've got three Andrews on uh, what, what is the alternative and how do we get back from here? Imran's on how could this have happened? And the last one uh, on, uh, on, on direct rule. Um, thoughts, Jill, do you want to and I'm, Jess I'm possibly I'm very interested come in Jonathan's experience. Jonathan, yeah. after all, succeeded in bringing direct yeah. rule, yeah. Uh, ending direct in, in, rule. So I yeah. think it would be very interesting all right. All right. if, yeah. he, were, if yeah. he were doing this now, because one of the things that no one has been willing to talk to us about is the state of play on the talks. And that's one reason why we don't cover that at all, because everybody's very clear that they couldn't talk to us about what was, what was going on in the talks. But I think your point about the sort of DUP's alternative route of influence uh, through the Conference Supply Agreement is one reason why we think uh, in our report that Westminster parties need, the UK Westminster parties need to think very carefully about their relationship with uh, one or other of the parties in Northern Ireland because if they are seen to have a sort of, uh, you know, they're obviously going to be ideologically close to one or the other. I mean, Labour would have a relationship with the SDLP and stuff like that. So they'll be totally naive on that. But to have a sort of formal relationship of dependence actually is incredibly difficult to square with being seen to be the sort of more neutral arbiter between the parties. And I think that's one of the very important roles that the UK government has to play to get power sharing executives back up and running, even more so when it can't do a sort of very effective double act with the Republic because it has managed to you know, put that relationship into a very bad place compared to where it has been before. But I'm very interested in Jonathan's uh, comments on there you go, Jonathan. bring it back into that, where there was a very different sort of tactic to the yeah. sort of making yeah. no decisions yeah. and basically sort of almost shaming the parties back 
mm. into power by saying we're making no decisions. So, you know, we're not compensating the victims of historical abuse and it's your fault. The trouble is that it actually people thought it was Karen Bradley's fault. So that didn't sort of, you know, redound inordinately well. It didn't seem to put enough pressure on the party to get them back. Well, I mean, I think you've just demonstrated you're an incredibly fast learner, but I mean, everyone knew that uh, before, before you did this report. Um, the, uh, I just want to make one preliminary comment. When I talked earlier about uh, introducing direct rule, just for the avoidance of any doubt, it was in the context mm. of if we have a no deal. Mm. Otherwise, I entirely mm. understand uh, the, the, the articulation of the problem as Andrew's uh, just outlined it. So. I think absolutely critical to this, um, in addition to the point about the relationship between the Conservative Party here and DUP, is the relationship between London and Dublin. And if I draw the parallel in slightly more extended form between now and 2002, despite the imposition of direct rule in 2002 against the wishes of the Irish government, which they needed formally to oppose. It was possible immediately to begin a process of dialogue between the two governments about how we were going to put in place a process in which both, and then to use language which I've used on many other occasions, both governments were in lockstep in trying to get mm. the parties, and the parties over respectively, which they had the greater influence, into the same space. And this is not um, uh, a council of despair or despondency, I, but I think it's hugely important to focus on it. Unless and until we get back to that position, the likelihood of achieving an effective, and I underline effective, uh, restoration is highly unlikely. Hmm. Uh, and Andrew, do you have an answer? If not an answer, do you have a... Yeah. And uh, Peter Owen, did you want to pick up any points? Uh, the final well, question perhaps just pick up on Imran's point, which I think is a, is a very good question. Uh, and as ever, you know, casting a, a light from afar is, is a very good technique. Um, I guess the short answer is that nobody envisaged it would go on for this long. Um, and I can remember, and Andrew will remember sitting around in March 2017, wondering if we could get to Easter 2017 without ministers. Um, and here we are, nearly a 1,000 days later, um, still existing. There have been a number of times when the parties have got really quite close to doing a deal in that interim period. So there's always been a just round the corner, it might be coming back. And that, I think, has been a reason. If people had seen it was going to last for this long, I'm not sure whether uh, the actions immediately afterwards wouldn't have needed to be differently. But I think on the broader point, um, obviously the Northern Ireland Civil Service wants to see devolution back. Um, the key thing, I think, in whatever steps are taken uh, after a no deal is not to create perverse incentives that make that more difficult. Uh, logically, that would require the two governments to be doing a lot of intensive thinking about what the nature of any arrangement was. I'm not aware that that thinking is going on, but I'm not, not necessarily going to be party to it if I am. We might be able to squeeze in one or two final questions. Are there, are there any? Great. There's one. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, uh, one there and one. Uh, uh, oh, great, we've got three quickly. Um, so let's. Um I'm Susanna from Civil Service World. Um, I was really interested uh, in your point, Jess, about the age balance in the Northern Ireland Civil Service and the challenge that provides. Um, and uh, when I interviewed David Sterling, he was talking about he was keen to encourage more secondments uh, between UK and Northern Ireland Civil Services. I wonder, are you as a leadership cadre, are you? thinking about that challenge of how will you recruit more people in, younger people in, in this really difficult environment that you will be in, um, and also how far that kind of secondment um, wish has developed. Are we seeing closer working with UK and NICS? Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's take, let's take all three together. Somewhere in the middle. Yes, thank you. And then right at the back. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Stephen, High Commission of Canada. Um, I'm interested in the points that were made about the lack of uh, Northern Ireland literacy in the UK civil service. Um, so I just wonder if the panel has thoughts on how easy it would be to move to a direct rule model um, if that became uh, necessary and desirable at any point. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much indeed. And at the back. 
Uh, Joe Owen from the Institute for Government. Uh, I have a question about the Brexit process and one of the proposals that has been floated recently around a stormant lock uh, around the backstop and whether panellists think that power sharing could ever withhold having to make a decision around aligning with the EU and Ireland more or aligning with uh, Great Britain and the UK. Okay, and in 20 seconds, Joe, explain the, the stormant lock for me. Of the We're still waiting for the government to explain yeah. exactly how it would work. Um, but the principle being that Northern Ireland would in some way have a say of whether to align with new EU rules or to diverge with the UK. Okay, terrific. Thanks. Three, three great uh, final questions. Let's go uh, into the end of the, the, the panel and pick what you Yeah, um, with regards to um, Stormont Lock and the backstop, um, uh, coming closer to the end of... Um, kind of coming closer to the uh, end of October, it's becoming pretty clear that um, a Northern Ireland only backstop or something very similar is about the only thing that's really on the table at the minute. Um, and uh, those fundamental questions of Stormont Lock and whether, how can um, Northern Ireland have a voice in, in discussions with the EU is really pertinent. Um, there's a lot of research being done at the minute um, at Queen's University in Belfast um, about how um, Northern Ireland could potentially have a say in, in uh, discussions within the EU, but with regarding, um, and with regarding that static alignment with regulations in the, in the EU, and then the dynamic alignment as well, so updates to regulations, um, as a, in, instead of new regulations coming in, um, really, really, um, really important issue that we, that, we, uh, that we get right before the end of the transition period. First, if I just pick up on the, the age uh, and secondment issues. So yes, uh, as a result of austerity, we've not been recruiting for a long time. We've just begun um, to, to change, to, you know, the path is moving, and we will be going externally for a lot more uh, competitions uh, than perhaps we have done in the past. Um, we need to be careful we're not discriminating on grounds of age, but of course, one of the things we would like to see is that we're more representative of the community we serve. Um, secondment policy remains quite restrictive. Um, but I, for example, am currently in negotiation with the Scottish Government for a, a, a secondment. Um, and we do have a resource where we, tend, where we have highly specialist needs. We tend to use the Strategic Investment Board that was established uh, as part of the devolutions you know, by, by devolved ministers as a means of trying to meet some of those pressures. But we have more to do in that area, I think it's fair to say. Shall, shall I pick up the, the Northern Ireland literacy point here? I mean, point, yeah. a, a very, a very... Uh, key aspect of direct rule, and it's well uh, articulated in the report, so read the report, is that, of course, once direct rule is instituted, these guys, Andrew, Peter, and all their colleagues, are, for better or for worse, reporting to uh, Westminster um, politicians who are the ministerial team. So there is at once a political oversight of uh, Northern Ireland, uh, which, if you like, doesn't require an additional degree of literacy. I think there's a wider question, which is also uh, touched on, which Jill touched on at the beginning, and I uh, only briefly went into, which is um, the NIO going forward um, is an organisation which is now uh, not um, as attractive perhaps or hasn't been as attractive to many in Whitehall because the issues with which it has been dealing have um, not had the focus that they had during the Troubles. Um, well, I think there are various uh, routes through to dealing with that problem, um, one of which is a wider machinery of government change, but that's mm. not relevant to an immediate imposition mm. of direct rule. Um, in a few weeks' time, if that's needed. Thank you. Jill and Jess. Uh, so just to finish, I think, uh, I think it's all extremely good points. Um, I think one of the things that's very important uh, in the Brexit process is that, you know, if ministers are looking at something like a stormont lock to get them out of jail on, uh, on how to manage Brexit, um, they need to think through how will that play out long term? Because we can't have a position where we create a system where we further destabilise a system of government that is still quite fragile. Quite a lot of our sort of recommendations saying actually, you know, 
it is, and I think you know both Jonathan is absolutely right. It is an amazing achievement this government has worked at all. We, I mean, to get Imran's question, one reason why it collapses is because we basically say that if both parties, you know, if two of the major traditions won't take part in the government, you don't get a government. We don't say that anywhere else in the UK. So it is an amazing mm. form of government that we have invented here to answer some really big problems. And it is incumbent, I think, on the UK government to take those responsibilities, I think, really very seriously, and perhaps more controversially, more seriously than they have appeared to do in the past few years, as they've become very obsessed with, um, with their Brexit agenda. And I think they really need to play out how do we think that will work through and are the institutions going to be able to cope with the demands we are putting on them? And one of the questions there is, you know, is this going to be a big issue or a small issue? We don't know what the form of future relationship between the UK and the EU is. So we don't know if this is an issue that comes up on one obscure technical standard once a year or is something that is a decision that has to be made every day, every week that there's a new piece of EU legislation. That really, really matters, I think. Mm. So well, I would very, just say very, think very about well, Northern Ireland well very carefully. We don't even know the scale of the problem to add to the many things we don't know. Okay, yes, so yeah. fi a, fi a final thought on Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I mean, just to add to that, the, the big kind of issue with the Stormont lock is that what happens if there is no Stormont institutions? Um, there haven't been for two and a half years. There's no guarantee that, that they will be, will be restored. Um, and so it can't be used as, a, as the get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, another issue also is whether that would be acceptable um, to the EU if there's the possibility that... The, that Northern Ireland might vote to, to diverge from the EU. Um, the kind of perhaps the one thing that might allow them to accept that is the fact that any decision in the Assembly, assuming that it operates the same and there are no changes um, to the way it works, is that that, would be, that decision would be subject to a petition of concern, which means that it could be blocked by one or other of the other communities. Now, that might make it more acceptable to the EU if the decision to diverge from the EU law could then be blocked by um, a nas um, nationalists in, in the Assembly. Um, but that's a big risk for them for them to take, and kind of as as Jill said, that we need to think seriously about the implications um, in the long term, rather than just what what might work right now. We're going to have to pause there. Thank you very much indeed for for for, for those last thoughts. Thanks for terrific questions. We clearly could go on for quite a long time. Uh, events mean that we are probably going to keep discussing this for quite a long time, and we'll certainly look to follow up this really terrific report, which I'm really proud that the Institute has done. Uh, please join me in thanking the panel, particularly those who have travelled not from round the corner, and that includes everyone here. I guess that's, that covers Keeble as well as uh, Northern Ireland. Thank you very much indeed for coming. Thank you.